We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Well, it's a brand new year and a brand new Mel Tucker's Inside Zone, the weekly podcast here at the University of Colorado. I'm voice of the boss, Mark Johnson, along with the head coach of the Buffaloes. Football season over. All the recruiting is going on. And we get a chance to talk with uh, Mel today, a guy who is a phenomenal buff and was a great buff in two sports here at the University of Colorado. One of them was football, and one of the other was golf, of course, where he went on to make a, a heck of a name for himself in the golfing world. But let's welcome in Hale Irwin to Mel Tucker's Inside Zone. Hale, welcome. Uh, happy holidays. Well, it's been a, a great holiday season, and uh, you know, I, I think as the years go by, each season gets a little bit more precious. So uh, uh, it, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm anxious to get started on a new year and kind of see what – what it entails. Uh, every every start is something new, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, hell, thanks for coming on, man. I know you're I know you're busy, and uh, we really appreciate you. You know, not ha- not too many people have starred in much less lettered in, in football and golf in college. I mean, you probably you got to be maybe the only person in the history of the NCAA to do that. You know, going back to your college days, how were you able to balance those two those two sports? Well, college, I, I don't, I don't know. I think uh, I, I looked at it uh, when I was recruited to play football. Uh, I was perhaps a little better known locally uh, than I was nationally, and, and on the golf scene, uh, the same thing would apply there. Uh, it was a little bit more. Uh, it was a, a simpler life. Let's put it that way. In today's world, is it's seemingly seemingly so complex. Sure. 
that I think at times we, we ought to harken back to some simpler times, make it a little easier. But you know, for me, it was uh, I was not recruited to play golf anywhere. I you know I had had some success uh, locally and and in the state, but not nationally. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so my my value probably was more in the if I had any value was was more in the football field, and it was a a scholarship that was really hard for for me and my parents to turn down. Uh, we weren't uh, rich by any means, and uh, while we, we had food on the table, that kind of stuff, it, it was something I think was encouraged by my mom and dad and that they didn't have to have that outlay of money to go to school. So right. uh, it was sort of a, a double-edged sword, if you wish, and, and I did enjoy playing, but you know, as time went on, the golf got a little bit better, then it became I had to come to a crossroads at some point. Hell, it would seem that those are two very opposite sports in terms of their approach, in terms of uh, physically what they ask of you. Football and golf, is there any similarity between the two that, that you ever connected, being that you played both? Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's a greater connection than people think. Uh, where we, we look at football, and it's certainly it's a team sport, and, and Coach can tell you that uh, you, you might have uh, a player slip up on a play or two, and somebody could cover for him. You know, you could have a an offensive lineman uh, take care of of a blitzing linebacker. You could have a a defensive man neutralize a double team. But you know, somewhere along the line, you, somebody's got to make up for that. But in the long haul, if you don't have everybody playing on all cylinders, you're not going to win. That's right. And, and that's sort of what you have to do in golf. Uh, there's no one else out there. There's no one to protect your backside. There's no one to cover for you. And the positions that I played in uh, football was quarterback and a defensive back. So it's sort of those lonely positions, if you wish. And uh, you kind of learn the discipline. Uh, you have to learn your assignments. And, and let's face it, I was not terribly gifted athlete. The, I, I felt like I applied myself to the maximum I could. Uh, I, I gave it all. I, I never, never quit. And so you can take those, you can call them locker room cliches, you want, and you can carry those into any life, any any walk of life, any business, and they work. And and they work for me uh, across the board. You know, uh, you play for for Eddie Crowder, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Did uh, did Coach Crowder did did he uh, excuse you from spring football in order to to play golf or? Were you able to do that? Yes. Now, as a freshman, uh, a freshman in, in them our days, if you wish, uh, weren't <laughs> eligible for varsity, but you did have to play uh, that spring football as a freshman. Okay. Going on, you're required to play unless you made uh, a varsity, uh, a spring varsity team, such as baseball. Uh, it's amazing we had some of these big guys going out for track. <laughs> <laughs> It was kind of hilarious, but at the same time, uh, you can see where spring ball is, is necessary uh, for some. For others, I think for me, I had I had told Coach Crowder in the very beginning when I was recruiting that I, I'm going to play golf in the spring, and he understood that and was uh, really very much behind me in that choice. You know, I think about Eddie Crowder here, Hale. When, when I got here, I got to know Eddie relatively well, and, and uh, of course he passed on a number of years ago now, but... Uh, one of the great buffs and one of the great personalities. What, what do you recall? You were one of, I think, one of his first recruiting classes, I believe. But what do you recall about Coach Crowder? Well, I was his first recruit. Period. Okay. Wow. Uh, well, I think Eddie. He he brought 
he brought the Bud Wilkinson temperament. He brought the, that that successful uh, offense they had down there in Oklahoma for all those years. Uh, we, we we played a, a, a pretty basic in-your-face kind of defense. It was straight-up stuff, uh, nothing fancy. He, he relied primarily on his defenses. Uh, of course, back then, the offenses weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are now, nor the defenses, but I think Eddie felt like uh, if if you held him to no points, you certainly weren't going to lose. <laughs> sure. And I think he had, uh, well, if I remember correctly, we had six or seven guys on the defensive team. When I was a senior, between the juniors and seniors on that team, uh, six or seven of them went on to play in the pros. Wow. Uh, you know, well, you, you know this, uh, Dick Anderson from Boulder. He went sure. on to be all pro with the, the Dolphins. And uh, we had others that uh, went on to play a, across the NFL. So we had a very, very good defense. While the offense was very capable, I think Eddie felt like he put his strengths in his defenses and um, relied upon just good, hard-nosed football, which kind of across the board everywhere. You saw that at Ohio State with Woody Hayes. You saw yep. it at Bob Devaney in Nebraska. You, you kind of saw it everywhere. Um, but I think it was a uh, – Eddie just felt like it was – you don't play this game uh, anywhere but in the trenches. And you, you, you play it straight up and you take care of your property and you do your assignment, you're going to be fine. And uh, that's kind of the way we played. Shoot, I, I love it, man. You. Yeah. Uh, you played for for Coach Carter. You played quarterback, but you settled in. Uh, you played quarterback, but you settled in as a corner. How did that happen? Was that because of the the two platoon system kind of going away, or did you have a choice, or just felt like you wanted to play defense? How that how that come about? Well, I I don't know if we had a choice, Coach. One <laughs> 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 of your players come to you says, Coach, can I sit out this play? Yeah, <laughs> yeah not so much. Right. Yeah, you can sit out the whole game. <laughs> Uh, well, as the, my my sophomore year, the substitution rules were you could only substitute two players per play, and that lasted all of one year. But so you you had to learn to play both ways. Right. Uh, wow. And the the third play of the game, I believe it was in our opening game, uh, the fellow playing my equivalent on defense broke his wrist, and I was the starting quarterback, so I started playing a lot. Wow. Uh, mm. You, you learn to play both ways, regardless of you, you in and out. Uh, but then my junior year, they they quit that experiment, and then it became a full platoon. So uh, I stayed on defense and was the uh, the weak side safety, uh, and uh, I kept getting all the offensive plays in the playbook. But I never ran another offensive down, which suited me just fine. <laughs> a lot of things happen on the ball those piles that people don't know about. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Without question. And you look good jumping on top of the piles. You know, hey, yeah, he was in there. <laughs> Hale, as you look at college football in 2019, you, you consider where it was when you played. And, you know, we're on the verge of the, the national semifinals and the college football playoffs and the national championship. And now we're talking about image and likeness with student athletes. Are, are you amazed at where this game has gone? Well, I am. And I, it, it's almost like it's. Uh, run amok, I think. Uh, there are things that I think are so important now that I'm, you know, I'm well into my my elderly years, and and when I look back, I see the importance of both athletics, but I see the importance of taking these young men and making men out of them, making them responsible, mm. stand-up kind of people. Yep. 
and, and I'm not certain that uh, uh, we've done, done them right. I know there are good many people out there trying to do the right thing, but the, the almighty dollar seems to always win out, and I'm not certain that's uh, the right thing for these young men. Uh, we rely upon their talents to bring notoriety and, and basically you know, bring funds into the university on donations. But at the same time, are we really turning out the, the men we want to to take care of the world uh, as it comes tomorrow? So I don't, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. I really enjoy the game as it's played now. These, these young people, are, they're so gifted. They're, they're so athletic. Uh, and I, I just hope that we're doing the same thing for them in the classroom. Yeah, hell, when you, um, when you were here as a student athlete, I mean, I mean, this is incredible, you know, what you did while you were, while you were here. Um, kind of what was the development like for you, like, um, as an athlete in terms of did you start off fast? Or did you kind of, Mark and I were talking before we came on the air with you about, you know, guys maturing while they're in college and maybe, you know, kind of being good players but then end up being great. I mean, was it, did you, did you start off on fire or did it just kind of build up or, you know, how was your career? Well, I think uh, you, you grow into things, Coach, as I see it, and I'd have to say that for myself. Uh, there's, there's so many young people out there, and I see it certainly in the game of golf. There's so many really good players that can hit the ball far. They can do all the things that are needed, but they don't make it. Hmm. And there are yep. others that you look at and say, well, they're not nearly as gifted, but they do make it. And you can see it on the football field. There are kids out there, they're specimens. They've got the speed, they've got the size, but you know you can't measure that heart. That's right. You cannot measure that last you know, 1% to 5% that makes one young man better than another. And some of that, I think, comes with maturity. Yep. Uh, and I saw each year, for instance, when I was playing both ways, it got a little, little confusing. Uh, but I hurt my shoulder in the eighth game of the year. I got run over in, at the University of Missouri. I missed the last two games, and I, I went to Coach Crowder, and I said, Coach, I'm, I'm not sure if this is the future I want to have. Mm. And uh, he, he sat uh, with me, and we kind of talked about what I should do, and I went down to the Broadmoor to, to speak with Dal Finsterwald. And, and Dal was very kind and, mm. and took a look at my golf swing, and I thought, what a predicament. Now, as I look back, I see what a predicament to put Dal in, saying, hey, can this kid make it on the tour, or can he succeed in golf? Well, who knows? If somebody did that to me, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> uh, wow. I do remember my dad saying, don't start something you can't finish. And so I, I stayed on, played football, and, and that next year it, it kind of dawned on me what we were supposed to be doing. Maybe it's simply because I was now a defensive player, not so much offensive. But then, then again, my senior year, it, it, it became more crystal. Uh, I, I could see things better. Yep. It develop, and that's just I think mental maturity. Was I physically better? No, hmm. but more I was more mentally capable of, of taking those things and processing them, and that that really kind of helped with my golf game. As I went into the tour, I thought, oh my gosh, these guys are so good. But I I tried to watch, <clears throat> excuse me, I tried to listen, I tried to incorporate what I could, yep, and and do what I could, and not not try to stretch it beyond what I was not capable of doing. Yeah, you, you just touched on something. In fact, right before we, we uh, gave you a call to get you on the podcast today, I said to Mel, I, I want to ask Hale about 
the psychology of sports. The you know, because golf, it would seem to me, is such a mental game, and there's so much pressure, as you talked about earlier. Being you're standing over a four foot putt, it might be for winning, you know, a a major tournament or that kind of thing. What have you learned about the psychology of sports? What separates people who are equally as talented as you might be, but maybe can't seem to play under pressure? What have you learned about that during your career? I learned that I don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think there's a there's a surprise around every corner, mm, yeah. uh, and, and and sometimes when you think you know who you are, then the situation arises that that you it's new to you, and and I think that's part of life's excitement. Really, is that uh, if it was the ordinary and the known and the mundane, then, then you wouldn't care. So I think every every time out, and I don't care what you're doing, every time out uh, is. It's an experience, and you should relish that experience and rely upon your experience, rely upon the confidence that you build. And I've tried to learn more from what I've done well than what I've done badly. To me, looking at mistakes is sort of a step backwards. Okay, I'll I'll give that a cameo appearance and say, oh, I really didn't like that. But I go for it, and I really like that. So I've I've always tried Mm. to base my career on, the things that I do well and learn more from those, because that's what I want to repeat, rather than dealing in the negative, which to me is is sort of self-defeating. So I, I think the psychology, if you wish, is you really have to understand who you are. That guy in the mirror, he yeah. knows you as better than anybody else. That's right. And, and that guy can knows if you tried your best or if you didn't. He knows if you told a fib or you didn't. He knows if you cut the corners or you didn't. And if you can look at that guy in the eye and say, hey, I did my best, then you've given everything you can, and you learn from that, and that's a positive step forward. Hell, could you uh, give us um, a little bit of an indication about, like, practicing in golf? I mean, I try to play golf. I mean, I can't hit the ball straight. I could be out there two hours practicing, and it doesn't do me any any good. It it just amazes me in all sports – you know, how people get to master their craft, but especially in golf. Like, can you give us an idea, like, how many balls did you hit a day? Did you play every day? I mean, what what was that like? Well, let me draw a parallel, Coach. You know, if you've got your team out there and you're going through a bad practice, do you yeah. continue on with a bad practice? No. No. Well, same way with the golf. If I'm out there and I'm flailing away at it and – by the way, I've never been out there more than two hours, so you might think about that, Coach. <laughs> I will think about that. <laughs> I will think about that. There's better things to do with your time than that. <laughs> I've always been one that went out with the idea it's a quality practice, and if I go out and in the first 30 balls, if I hit the ball well, hey, how am I going to improve? And I want to leave that practice session with a good feeling. So I leave, and let's say I go to the putting green. I never leave a putting green without making a putt. I don't care if it's from one foot. The last thing I want to hear is success, and that's that ball going into the hole. Uh, conversely, if I'm having a bad practice day, why do I want to continue with that? Sure. Again, as I said earlier, that's, that's dwelling on things that are not good. Yes, I want to learn from the things I do poorly, but I learn more from what I do well. So I, my practice sessions have never been length of time. It's been the quality of that time. And 
uh, that's the way I've always practiced. Even to this day, uh, I, I go out and if it, I get good shots made and good contact made, for the most part, I'm hitting the ball as as good as I can. I go home. Hmm. During wow. your time here at CU as a golfer, you, you won two conference championships. And Hale in 1967, he won the NCAA championship and, and really kind of ran away with it. He had a 65, I think, in the third round at a, at a hole-in-one and, and then uh, you know took the title uh, through the fourth round. T- take us through that that event and what you recall about winning the NCAA championship. Well, I had, it was back in Pennsylvania. At, uh, uh, there's a place of Fred wearing Shawnee on the Delaware. And uh, whereas I'd never heard of it. And, uh, here's, here's a kid that traveled by himself, never rented a car, never been anywhere. And I'm flying from, leaving from Boulder, going to this place. And I fly to Newark, New Jersey, get a car, drive to wherever this place was. <laughs> and now, now I'm, this is quite an experience. So uh, I, I get there, and you know, I, I'm with other players that I've seen at some of the conference tournaments I've seen at uh, other NCAA's. But for the most part, they're all relatively new. And so we go through the first couple of days, and I'm doing okay. Uh, but who's this kid from Colorado? I don't know. I still have snow on me. You know, <laughs> But I have the most bizarre round of golf in the third round I've ever had. I had uh, four pars, four bogeys, nine birdies, and a hole-in-one. Wow. Uh, so that really kind of set the tone for the following day. But I'll, I'll tell you, the one thing I learned from that, I thought it was because I was drinking a lot of water the next day and it was cold and my throat was tight. Uh-uh. I was nervous as I could be, and I was from the cold water. And I was restricting my breathing too. <laughs> It was just from the pressure, but but I learned that and I got through it, you know, and I won. So for me, uh, like I said earlier, I'd, I'd had some success uh, kind of locally, but I'd never achieved anything nationally, and that was the catalyst, uh, frankly, that got me thinking very seriously about, hey, I can make it on the tour. I just beat you know the, the complement of my fellow uh, golfers around the country. And maybe that's the catalyst that will get me going. And that's, hmm. that's the, one, the one thing that probably turned me towards the professional uh, golf life. Hell, when you, when you got to the tour, was there, any, uh, was there any point in time when you, you got out there and you saw those guys and said, you know what, these guys might be too good for me. I, I might not be able to, to really have a career, make any money doing this. Did, did you ever get to that point? No. Uh, I'll just say that no because that's, uh, I, I, that's not part of my vocabulary, Coach. It wasn't something that entered my mind. Yes, sir. But, but I was a realist and said, hey, I've got a lot to learn mm-hmm. before I get there. But I never, ever felt that I was overwhelmed. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, let, let's just, when I went to the tour qualifying school in April of 1968, we had eight rounds of golf. We had 36 on thir- 18 on Thursday, 18 on Friday, 36 on Saturday. They gave us Sunday off. We had 18 Monday, 18 Tuesday, and 36 Wednesday. Wow. So, you know, that's quite a grind for most people. But, hey, I was an athlete. I was in good shape. That didn't bother me one bit. But what I did learn was that I had a lot to learn about, yeah, I got through that. But once I got on the tour and I saw the Palmers and the Nicholases and all the great players out there, that's when my eyes got really big, and I thought, you know, I've got a lot to learn, but I am not going to back off from it. This right. is a challenge, but 
I've seen challenges before out on the, the, the gridiron. You know, you have a 220-pounder running at you, and you weigh 180 pounds. You better find <laughs> I love it, man. Uh, so I, I look at it. Uh, I looked at it from the standpoint of there are things I, I know that I'm not good at, but I'm going to work at it. Yep. And I look and see what this person does. I, I sort of made a mosaic, if you wish, this, this perfect golf swing, whether it be putting or chipping or golf, full golf swing. I had this image in my mind that would take one man's grip, one guy's takeaway, one guy's stance, one guy's posture, all mm. those things, and I threw them together, and that's kind of what I concentrated on. Now, could I... Emulate that in the real life? No, but it influenced me in a positive direction. You know, I look at the course of your professional career, Hale. I mean, you had, you had 20 wins in the PGA Tour. You had 45 in the Champions Tour. Uh, when it came to the majors, uh, the Masters, you finished in the top four. The PGA Championship, you finished in the top five. The British Open, you, you tied for second one year in 1983. You won the U.S. Open three times. Well, what, what does that mean when you're standing at the U.S. Open and you're able to uh, hoist the trophy for winning that championship three times. That's got to be an amazing feeling. Well, it really is because as a, a young guy, <clears throat> back even before I uh, went to see you, uh, I was out what is now, I think, Flatirons or University, whatever it was, the course out on Arapahoe. Sure. I don't know what they call it now, but then it was Boulder Country Club. Uh, I, was, I would work in the summer for my dad and my uncle as a laborer, and I would go out after work and go out in my jeans and my old, clothes and I had a shag bag that had made 30 old cruddy balls in it and while there wasn't a range there I'd go over on the side of a hole somewhere and, and hit balls and the one thing I could distinctly remember saying okay this shot is to win the U.S. Open hmm. and the reason I got there was because A. I wasn't a pro so I couldn't play in the PGA the British Open I didn't even know where Europe was <laughs> the Masters was something that I, you know, I knew little about but I could qualify for a U.S. Open and, in fact, I did. In 1966, I qualified with the pro at Cherry Hills Country Club. Warren Smith, uh, Warren and I both qualified. We went out to play in the 1966 U.S. Open in San Francisco at the Olympic Club, and I played as an amateur. So that was always my dream. That was always the thing that was foremost in my mind. So it, it was of no surprise, I suppose, when we'd get to the U.S. Open. I just It just got to me more than anything else the uh, uh, the want to win, and it was also probably the hardest venue. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, we go back to our early discussion about what can you apply football to golf. Well, you know, you got a big opponent. Yeah. And and I wasn't going to back down. He may beat me, but he's not going to outtry me. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what you had to do at the U.S. Open. Was you just you got to face up to the fact that my first at Wingfoot was oh, it was such a hard course, and seventy percent of the locker room was dead they'd quit before they even started wow so you know wow. you, you, you look at that and say hey i only got to beat 30 percent of the field and <laughs> so you kind of hang in there you, you you gotta you either have to trick yourself or convince yourself otherwise uh, otherwise you, you just you're in a losing battle well when you when you uh just when you're competing like say in a major um and the courses are tough are you are you? Do you find yourself playing like competing against the course? Are you playing against yourself? Are you play, are you competing against the other guys that are out there, or you know, kind of what's the approach to that in golf? Well, I think in golf, uh, it's I can't worry about somebody else because I have no control over what they're doing. Yep. Uh, 
uh, at least directly. You know, maybe indirectly, if I'm playing well, they may, they may, and I underline may, get discouraged or they start pressing themselves. Uh, but I can't control that. So I just try to control my environment. In my environment, I, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, the old K-I-S-S, you know, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yes, sir. That's what I try to do. <laughs> and, and with that, you'd be surprised how far you can go with keeping it simple, stupid. Uh, not, not doing things that are outside the realm of, of uh, smart golf. Not things that are risky. Don't take that high-risk shot unless you absolutely have to. Uh, you have to be able to measure what you're capable of at the time and what you, you feel like doing. If you feel like that is the shot you want to play, well, then by all means, play it. Don't go against your heart. But sure. at the same time, the heart and the brain sometimes don't work, and that separates the successful ones from the ones that are not successful, is how the communication between the heart and the brain uh, works. Hale, I've asked this question, I think, for, for athletes in, in, in various sports, about somebody in their sport that they enjoyed watching either because they were awed by their ability or the way they went about their business. Who in golf, when you think about who, the guys, you and you mentioned some of them, some of the greats of all time you competed against, or, or somebody in this modern-day era, who do you look at during your career and say, that, that, that guy amazed me by what he was able to do? Well, I, I think it's a, a pretty simple answer, and, and maybe in today's game it might be Tiger Woods, but in, in yesterday's game it was Jack Nicklaus. Sure. And I say that because Jack had, had great talents, obviously. He had, he had the combination of good, really good touch. Uh, while he was a really, really good putter, he wasn't known for great putting. While he was a really good driver, he wasn't known for great driving. Uh, while he was a good iron player, he, wasn't known, he was known for Jack Nicklaus. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I tried to watch Jack, and where I couldn't swing like him, I couldn't hit the ball as far as him, but I watched how he prepared how he got himself, how in the world did he get himself so ready for all these majors? And, you know, he wins 18 major championships. He finishes second in more than that. So he finishes in the top two in over what, almost 40 events. Wow. Uh, so I, I, where well, I couldn't swing like someone else because my body type is different, all, all that stuff. But I could watch and see how the, the best players prepared. And perhaps I couldn't prepare like Jack because he, at that time, was very successful. He could fly himself. Let's take the Masters, for example. I was down there. I read, well, Jack goes down early. He goes down on a weekend before. So I thought, I'm going to do that. Yeah. So I went down there, and I met up with Jack. We spent the weekend together. I, uh, we played together. We went out to dinner. Then he goes home on a Monday. Hmm. And then he comes back on a Wednesday. Well, I couldn't go home. So I stayed there. So by the time Wednesday comes, I'm ready to play. But it doesn't start till Thursday. <laughs> so his, he could cycle himself in and out of getting ready. And I, I couldn't because I, I just didn't have the means to do that. Hmm. So I learned right there that I can't do what he does simply because I don't have the means to do that. Sure. Yeah. You have to find your own method. And, and that's what I tried to look, see what these guys did, how they went about their life. Not how to hit a golf ball necessarily, but how they went about their life. Because that, to me, predicated probably if you were going to be successful or not. Did you have a good life off the golf course that helped you on the golf course? 
How does uh, how does winning a U.S. Open? How does winning a major? How does that change your career? How do, as a pro, like you know, winning a Super Bowl or winning a national championship? You know, those are life changing moments. How how do, how was that for you? Well, I think for me, coach, it it, it established in my mind that I could compete uh, on the biggest stages with the best in the world. Uh, I could play internationally now, and I could. I could do the things that I think as a young person you dream about. Yep. I had just done it. But we see far too many times, whether it be an MVP or a Super Bowl player, whomever, they falter the next year. Yep. They, they don't stay with it. Instead of taking that and using that as a springboard to more success or greater success, they get caught up in the moment and they forget there's, there's tomorrow. You can't live in today. You got to live tomorrow. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in the boy. I was great, and before they know it, that was last year, hmm. and then it becomes two years ago, and then all of a sudden they can't get it together again. Right. Uh, the great thing about sports, and maybe like the old gunslingers in the West, there's always somebody faster. <laughs> yeah, man. No <laughs> doubt about it. Always somebody out there that can beat you, whether it be faster or bigger or whatever it is. There's always somebody. And so you have to remember that that somebody might be right around the corner. Hmm. You better be ready for him. Hey, you've got more wins in the, on the Champions Tour than anybody ever, uh, 45. Now, how much longer you, you plan on competing at that level? <laughs> well, let's just see what I'm doing right now. <laughs> in my rocking chair going back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're on speakerphone. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm 74 years old now, and... Uh, I think there probably three or four years ago, I really kind of cut back on my schedule because uh, not that I didn't want to play, but you, you kind of look at uh, the rearview mirror and there's a lot of history back there and you look at the front looking mirror and there's not a lot out there and uh, priorities change. Yep. Um, you know, my family's most important to me. There are a few things, you know, people say, what's your bucket list? I don't have a bucket list, I got a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's been a tennis affectionado for a long time, was a good player once upon a time. We went to Wimbledon last summer with awesome. Jack and Barbara. Very nice. Uh, you know, so those kinds of things. You have to, and you, I couldn't do it while I was playing because the British Open was right at that time. There's always something else. There's always a tournament that I had to prepare for. Well, yeah. it's, it's kind of nice to step back and say, you know, as much as I love playing, I'm enjoying these other things too. But once... And I had this conversation with Larry Fitzgerald, you know, the great receiver for the Arizona Cardinals. Yep. Larry's a, a good friend and just a great guy. And he, we talked a couple of years ago, and he was a little bit about the R word, the retirement. Mm -hmm. I said, Larry, all I can tell you is once I decided to take it. Now, on the tour, let me back up. On the tour, once you do retirement, you you're only can play in 11, maximum of 11 tournaments. That allows you to withdraw from your your uh, your savings plans through the tour. But once you do that, you can only play in 11 events. So you're, you're kind of retired, but you're really not. But once you make that decision, A, you're not playing as much, so your skills kind of soften a bit, and you you kind of take a step backwards. All those guys that you're playing with are better than, now suddenly they're with you or past you. And Larry made that comment. He said, you know, I've noticed I've lost about a half a step and I said, well, Larry, you know, half a step in your game is huge. Yeah. You're, either, you're either open on that out pattern or you're not. 
And so I would say to you, if you're going to play, play. Forget about the R word. Mm-hmm. Don't, even, don't even think about it. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Is once you make, at least for me, when I made that decision, it was almost like a visible stop in the road and all the traffic went by me. Wow. The catch-up is hard to do, but do I enjoy playing? Yes. Do I enjoy shooting the scores I'm shooting now? No. <laughs> it gets to be a little bit of a, uh, a fine line you walk with you, what you're willing to accept and what is frustration. And sure. that's where I find myself now. Hell, uh, I just have to ask you, I saw a movie, I think last spring, I was intrigued by it. It was called Loopers, and it was a movie uh, about caddies and their relationship with the the golfers. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, throughout the course of your career, did you have a, a, a caddy that that was kind of with you for a stretch there, or, or t- some type of special relationship? Yes, but not uh, not quite like they have today, Coach. Uh, no. It's a whole different world. Uh, the, the traveling caddies back when I was really active on the, the PGA Tour uh, were they're pretty solid guys. But they were kind of a vagabond group. They all had nicknames, and you don't <laughs> want to know the real names, and they wouldn't tell you their past history. So uh, uh, it was uh, we were all good friends, and we made. I had a guy named Killer. Well, his real name was Sam Foy, but Sam was a boxer, and hmm. his ring name was Sam Killer Foy. And wow. he was a good fighter. He had fought uh, Sugar Ray Robinson once upon a time, and he kind of fought the undercards down in Houston and through New Orleans. Kind of, and he was very good. Mm. But wow. as a caddy, I liked him because he was quiet. You know, my I like speak when spoken to. You know, that's what, in my mind. I I got the yardages. I got the things. I didn't need a caddy in my ear all the time, as we see in the <laughs> world of golf now. Sure, that's right. Uh, and even Nicholas, I, I just I learned from these guys. They they had conversations, and but it was short conversations. And Arnold, with his caddy Creamy, and and Jack with his his caddy, uh, it, you learn how to deal with a caddy. You may have whispers between you, but the conversation really was one sided. Sure. Uh, if I had a question, I wanted him to have an answer, but I didn't need a lot of jabber coming my way. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a little different then, but. Still basically the same. You rely upon somebody to be there uh, to help you through those moments that uh, where you might need a little emotional uplift. You know, just a word of encouragement, uh, somebody to keep to keep you down if yeah. you're getting too high that, that knows you. Sure. Uh, Hale, you've uh, always kept a close relationship with the golf program here at CU. You go back to your coach Les Fowler, Mark Simpson, of course, and now Roy Edwards. How, how closely do you do you follow the Buffs the golf program every year? Well, it's not as close as I'd like to. Uh, the, I, they come down here to the desert uh, about the time that our first tournament's over in Hawaii, so I, I miss that almost every year. But Dale Douglas is down here in the winter, and Dale and I met with the, the golf team several years ago. Uh, I enjoy you know, just this conversation we're having. I enjoy that with these younger people if they're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to be informative for them. I try to be truthful. Uh, every kid there thinks they're going to be the next uh, pro and hot shot in the world. I try to say, no, you're not. <laughs> you got to throw it back at them to get them thinking. Sure. It's, it's not easy. It's, if you're going to be the best, and that's what you should aspire to be, is the best. And whatever you do, you should try to be the best. And you've got to figure out the path to be the best. You can be encouraged. 
you know, as a coach, you can show them how to X and O. Yep. They have to find a way to make it work. And that's what I try to do with these young people at uh, the Colorado Golf Association, you know, with their junior programs. I, 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 the first two programs around the country. I, I love dealing with the younger people to try and show them that golf can be a way of life, but, but it's, you're accountable only to yourself. And, and that's a stand-up kind of game, and that's what I love about it. Hey, you know, this has been a lot of fun. We, we've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, if you ever come back to Boulder, make sure you let us know. And uh, I don't know, maybe you can go and call some plays for Mel out there on the sidelines of the football game. How's that sound? Man, I, you know, when my nephew, Keith, was playing up there for uh, uh, McCartney, mm-hmm. my brother and I went down the sidelines, and they had just gotten this stuff called artificial turf. <laughs> Man, all of a sudden, these kids got big, and they could run fast. <laughs> And I, I, Coach, I wish you the best. I hope you get some good recruits this year. Uh, you're on the verge this year. It looked like you were, uh, had a great start. And uh, I think some injuries probably always are factored into that. But uh, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, thanks. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, you're always welcome, man. Love to have you at a game this fall. All right, sir. Thank you very much. There he is, the great Hale Irwin here at the University of Colorado. Boy, Mel, you think about what he did. In, in an individual sport like golf on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour to take home three U.S. Open Championships. I mean, that, that, that's some rarefied air right there. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's, a special, he's a special guy, and it just amazes me. You know, that's why I wanted to, to do this podcast. I mean, CU mm-hmm. just has, has so many – has had so many great people come through here. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's certainly one of them. You know, you think about it as well, and, and I'm always fascinated by the different sports, how there are things that equate – now he's a you know he was a football player, but he, he was a professional golfer, and things he talks about are the same things I hear you and your staff talk about to your athletes. Yeah, I mean it's it's just I just smile when I hear him saying some of these yep. things about you know practice and just a mental approach and you know uh, finding a way to get it done yep. and and things like that and you know learning from your mistakes but learning from your successes and and uh, I mean it's just it's just extraordinary. And I, I would love to have him come and come and watch a practice or, you know, come to a game, you know, speak to the team because, I mean, he's a true champion. I mean, he, oh. is, a, he is a legit one of the greatest athletes of, of all time. And I love the fact that while we're talking with him, he's making reference to uh, went with Jack and Barbara to Wimbledon. <laughs> he's talking about Jack Nicholas for goodness sakes, and, and Arnold, and it's Arnold Palmer. I mean, just amazing uh, what he experienced. Well, great stuff. Good to uh, catch up with the uh, great Hale Irwin here at the University of Colorado. You got any uh, New Year's resolutions? Uh, I've got a couple, um, yeah. but uh, the, the main one is uh, we got to get to a ball game. We got to get this thing going. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to think for a football coach right now with all the ball games going, you're itching like crazy, oh, aren't you? Oh, man, it's yeah. killing me. I it's killing it me. So, I yeah, it we're, we're, we're going to find a way to get it done. I like that. Well, that's the head coach, Mel Tucker, and this has been Mel Tucker's Inside Zone as we chatted today with the great Hale Irwin. I'm voice of the boss, Mark Johnson. Thanks for joining us this week on Mel Tucker's Inside Zone.